God that helps you to identify yourself in a lot of these stories. Uh, it's, listen, some of these stories, like, it actually makes me physically uncomfortable. Some of the stories in the Bible freak me out. And you think, like, uh-uh. How did God put up with me? I mean them. <laughs> right? And so, and so, again, I promise you that if you're reading the Bible with the right attitude, you're going to find yourself in there a lot more than what you want to. And that's where we find life, and, and that's where we find perspective. So anyway, um, just, just to give you a quick example of what it is that we're trying to do, those of you that know the great uh, works of literature, like uh, the Marvel comics in terms of Thor and uh, Iron Man and uh, The Incredible Hulk, etc. Um, they, they got together a few years ago and made the first Avengers movie. Now, now, just pretend you have some friends who don't know what this is about, and, you, and they didn't have the time to binge watch all of the, the individual movies before watching the first Avengers movie. If they only had 60 seconds to give them a quick overview, this is probably more or less what it would look like. Iron Man to Captain America, Marvel's extensive roster of superheroes have been getting the big screen treatment for years. But this summer, it's all about the Avengers. And if your comic book knowledge starts and stops with Garfield, we're here to get you up to speed in 60 seconds or less. So there's a super secret government agency called S.H.I.E.L.D. run by Agent Nick Fury. When Loki, the Norse god of mischief, starts well causing mischief, he recruits a super group to fight the foes no single superhero can withstand. He calls them the Avengers mostly because it sounds cool. Now over the years, the Avengers have gone through more members than Menudo, but right now we really only have to worry about seven of them. Iron Man, a.k.a. Tony Stark, billionaire arms dealer to his self-made justice bot, picks up most of the checks. Captain America, a.k.a. Steve Rogers, genetically modified World War II veteran. The Hulk, a.k.a. Bruce Banner, turns into a monster when he gets mad, frequently on probation on account of all the smashing. Thor, a.k.a. Thor, Norse god of thunder, sent by his dad's in a human body as a lesson in humility. Luckily, it's this body. Black Widow, a.k.a. Natasha Romanoff, a spy in a cat suit. Any questions? Hawkeye, a.k.a. Clint Barton, the world's greatest marksman, totally has the hots for Natasha. Now, at the end of the Thor movie, Loki gets conveniently sucked into a black hole, but it turns out he's found his way to the other side of the galaxy and teamed up with an alien race to come back and take over Earth and gain control of the Cosmic Cube, an infinite energy source currently collecting dust in Nick Fury's cabinet of curiosities. So it's time for Nick to wrangle together his dysfunctional family of gods, monsters, and award-winning actors to protect Earth, and we think the odds are in their favor. Who cares if Loki's got an alien army? We've got Robert. I have successfully privatized world peace. All right, so that's more or less what we're going to try and do over the next seven weeks as we fly through the different sections of the Bible. I'm hoping it's going to be a little, a little more detailed than that and maybe fractionally slower, but if I am referring to my notes a lot more than normal, it's because I don't have the time or the space to elaborate too much, and there are so many areas that, that I'm desperately tempted to elaborate and to dig a little bit deeper. But this morning, I have the easy task of quickly unpacking the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. If you are familiar with these books, then you may know that uh, they are sometimes referred to as the Pentateuch, which simply means five books, or um, it is referred to as the Law, uh, which is or, or the Torah, which means the law. And basically, that's because most of, well, all of the 613 plus laws uh, from the Old Testament are, are initially uh, recorded in these first five books. So I want to take a look at the book of Genesis, which, as you can imagine, gets most of the press out of the five uh, of these books. And the, the book itself, Genesis, actually means origins or beginnings because it is the origin of so much. So there's no book, or at least the content of which, that is attacked more in the Bible than the book of Genesis, because Genesis um, keeps speaking to the origin of things like creation, 
human race, sin, family life, civilization, nations, the Hebrew race, etc. So even, in fact, we see right at the very beginning, the first line. If you have a Bible or you go onto a digital version, the very first line, the first few words of the Bible have been attacked probably more than anything else in the Bible because it simply starts off by saying that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that's controversial, and that's offensive to some ears, and, and the Bible doesn't, doesn't seem to feel the need to explain the science behind that or the biology behind that. I, and I can't explain that to you. All I can tell you is that the headline there is that God was there at the beginning. In fact, God was there before the beginning, and it tells us that God created the world. One way or another. Every, so, so, so no one has ever created anything. We talk about people being creators. Actually, they are makers. To be a creator is to create something out of nothing. God's the only person that has ever created something out of nothing. Even where people are using all kinds of, of incredible scientific ingenuity, they're still using something to make something. God's the only person that can speak something out of nothing, right? You with me so far? I'm going to try not to speak as fast as the lady on the video. But, but for those of you that, that are interested, again, if you have a personality like mine where you want to dig deeper into almost everything, it's, it's a bit of a nightmare, but, but just an example of a sermon that you can watch that I think will help you understand better some of the authority of Scripture and some of the, some of the findings over millennia, really, and, and over centuries, including scientific uh, things that have changed and, and where knowledge has, has kind of evolved, is to take a look. If you go onto YouTube, you can simply search for Rick Warren and the 40 Days, of, or 40 days in the Word a message, you'll see part one, where I thought he did an incredible job of actually explaining a lot of those tensions that we deal with. So, so that's kind of one of the key verses right at the beginning of the Bible, is the fact that in the beginning God created. Then the next key verse is found in uh, chapter 1, verse 26, where it says, Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. Now, there are two headlines there. One is that we were created in God's image. And again, we live in a day and age where I don't think that the identity of human beings has ever been challenged more or called more into question than what we're dealing with in the 21st century. In fact, you're almost seen as arrogant if you, if you, if you, if you hold to the belief that your identity is actually found in God and not in who you want it to be or what others tell you it should be. And so again, I don't know if, there's, if, there's, if there are too many areas that the enemy attacks more than your identity. And again, I can't unpack that. I just want to encourage you that your identity is found in God. God said, let us make man in our own image. We're creating the image of God, which also means that we should value ourselves and, and one another. But the other headline there is you might have noticed the words us and our, right? So this, this is the first introduction in the Bible to what theologians call the Trinity. So the word Trinity is never used in the Bible, at least not in the English version, but it introduces us to this idea of a triune God, which again, you cannot get your head fully around. There is a level of mystery. And my only encouragement there is if you can fully understand God, you've made him way too small, in my opinion. But it does speak to this, this trinity. And, and the closest, and there might be some debate over this, but the closest analogy that I can think of is that of a family where, where you have a father, a mother, etc. So, so, so you have this unit. So God is a unit, but, but he's three persons. You have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And again, even that's not so much the headline as much as the fact that they existed in perfect community and intimacy and unity. And it was actually as an overflow of that that they wanted to create, that God wanted to create us. 
In fact, I love what uh, author John Aldrich says when, when referring to our desire for intimacy uh, in his book, The Sacred Romance. He said that we long for intimacy because we are made in the image of perfect intimacy. And I'll go further to say that we long for community because we are made in the image of community. The only person who wants you isolated, alone, doing life by yourself is your enemy. In fact, it's similar to if you've ever you know, had, had a great experience or you've seen a great picture or, or, or you've you know, seen this great view. There's something in you that wants to share it with someone. I drive my daughter crazy when we drive to work every morning. I'm like, babe, look at the mountain. Look at the, look at the lake. Look at the, the sea. She's like, oh, whatever. You know? but, but you want to share it. You want to share it. And so I love what Meister Eckhart, philosopher and theologian, said when he said that we were created out of the laughter of the Trinity. Like, like there was a desire to, to share. And again, for many married couples, this might not be everybody, but for many married couples, you get to a place where you feel like, like you have enough love. Like soon I got to a place where we felt like, like we have enough love to, like we, like we need more to share it with, you know. And I think that the Trinity had more than enough love to share, and that's why we were Created, but not just for relationship with God, but for relationship with one another, which is why the second very important verse in Genesis 2, verse 18 says that the Lord said it's not good for man to be alone. And every single man under his breath says, Amen. Don't worry, that's just our lamp. And so God, God creates Eve, He creates the woman, and together they enter into a relationship with each other and with God, and it was intimate. It was Safe. In fact, verse 24 and 25 of Genesis chapter 2 says that this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. And then take a look at verse 25. Now, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. I think that is the greatest single definition, single line of what God's intention is for us in community. And by the way, I would say that I don't think that that's restricted to marriage. I think, that, I think that God wants us to have those kinds of relationships with other people where, where, where you can have a friend, where you can have somebody with whom you can be completely transparent, where you can be vulnerable and still be loved, where you can be honest about your deepest, darkest secrets, where, you, where, you're, where you're able to share everything with someone and that person still loves you. That's a picture of our relationship with God because God knows everything and He still loves us. Anyway, so many of you know how the story unfolds. God, God's created paradise. He, he entrusted to Adam and Eve. And, and he tells them, you can enjoy everything except just this one thing. It's like, don't touch the paint. What paint? You know? Like, it's just that one thing. And it introduces this theme that we see continue, uh, continuing to be unpacked throughout the rest of the Bible. And it's the theme of choice. And we see this again and again and again and again where we have a choice. God created us with the option to serve Him, to trust Him, to love Him, to, to follow Him, to be with Him. And we, we see how they make you know, the wrong decision. The enemy comes in a form that, that just casts a bit of doubt. Like, did God really say? Think about how often you face that dilemma where in your mind you think, did God really say? And, and will it really be like that, or will I actually get to enjoy 
you know, something? Is, isn't he keeping something from me? And we struggle to believe that God is actually keeping us for something or keeping stuff for us. We think he's keeping stuff from us. And so we're no different to Adam and Eve. And so they, they give into it and, and sin enters into the world. And contrary to a lot of popular belief, this didn't keep God away from them. In fact, in Genesis 3 verse 8, we read that when the cool evening breezes were blowing... The man and his wife heard the Lord walking about in the garden, so they hid from the Lord among the trees. Then the Lord God called to man, where are you? God went looking. Maybe, maybe you've walked in here this morning, and you feel like God left you a long time ago, and God's so sick and tired of you, and God wants nothing to do with you. I want to encourage you that actually God's the one. You think you're looking for God? God God's never been lost. God, God's always been waiting, looking, you know, available to us, very much similar to the picture of what Jesus talks about in Luke chapter 15 with the prodigal son, where the father, like you almost get this picture of him being out on the veranda, like looking, waiting, in case today is the day that the son comes back. That is a picture of God. And so this just continues to unravel, and it gets worse and worse. We know that, you know, Cain kills Abel, and and, and it it just gets worse and worse until eventually... We find Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, where it says that the Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. And so God actually gets to a point where he has to, where he chooses to hit the restart button in order to, and again, we might think like that's hectic. Actually, God was giving mankind another chance as he, as he uses Noah, who the, who the Bible says God, you know, got, walked with God and was found blameless, even though after the flood we see him making... Listen, there are very few characters in the Bible where their nakedness is not displayed, where, where their foolishness, where their weaknesses is not displayed. There, are, there is no perfect character in the Bible, even, even if you take a look at someone like Joseph, of whom nothing negative is said, but like he was a man. There were, there were things, there were, there were weaknesses. And so God hits... The restart button, and again, you might think, like, has God given up on us? But if you carry on reading in Genesis, you know, think things kind of turn around chapter 11 and chapter 12, and we see that God starts over again with a man named Abram. And he eventually changes his name from Abram to Abraham because Abram means the father of one or one people, but Abraham means the father of many nations. And even there we see Abraham on this lengthy journey to where he just continually fails to trust God. Make you feel any better about yourself? Like, I don't know about you, but I've never, I've never, because of fear, you know, risked marrying my wife off to other people. Twice. This is what Abraham did. This was his level of faith. Or when God wasn't bringing, again, see if you can relate to this, when God wasn't bringing the promise quickly enough, he thought he'd help God. And so he, and so he sleeps with Sarah's servant, Hagar, and produces Ishmael, which produced consequences for generations. Some would argue still to this day. And again, you see, sure, but God, where, where do I run ahead of you because I don't like your timing and where I make these things happen? So we read about Abraham and Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. Um, one of them is Joseph, you know, from the multi- color or the technicolor dream code fame you know anyway and he's favored and spoiled by jacob so his brothers are jealous they sell him off into slavery and so for the next 13 years joseph is put into the most grueling character development school 
And again, we can get so disillusioned when we think, God, like, what's up with this? I've been serving you for three weeks and the promise hasn't come to pass. <laughs> or three years. Or what if God allows you to go for 30 years? But the, the purpose for which God was calling Joseph to was so significant that he had to be tested and stretched. And by the way, there's a difference between when God tests you, and there's a different word used in the Bible, and when Satan tests you. And I'd encourage you to come along to our team night on the 3rd of July to find out what that difference is. That's one of the things I want our national leader to, to share with us. So he goes to Egypt, and um, long story short, he manages to save his whole family, this family that rejected him and turned him in. Like, they were actually the reason that God was sending him ahead. And so we see Joseph with this unbelievable grasp of God's sovereignty, so that even when his father, uh, Jacob, has died, Joseph's brothers are now terrified. They come to him thinking that now, like, uh, like now there's going to be more located. Like, now he's going to hurt them. Like he's going he's to meter out his, his revenge. And so, they, and so they lie again, saying, like, our dad, like, dad said, don't do anything to us. Just forgive us, right? And, and Joseph, we see, and honestly, I think one of the most powerful verses in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, you see his perspective. When he says that you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. And this is kind of how Genesis ends, with this picture of, of God had a plan. You see, we, we lose perspective because, because we're always thinking right now. We're not, like we have no idea of what God knows and what God is doing and how we play a very small part in a much bigger picture. We get arrogant, we get self-righteous, and we, we, run a, we want to run ahead of ourselves. So Joseph... Um, uh, the scripture seems to indicate that, that, that basically 70 family members were, were rescued because of what Joseph had, had done. But as we go into the book of Exodus, we then see that, that basically this family of 70 people had now become exactly what God had promised, a powerful nation of roughly 3 million people. And so they're still all living in Egypt. The Egyptians are intimidated. So they start to, and don't miss this, they start to brutalize them. Like, I don't think we can get our heads around just, I mean, again, read the scriptures slowly. Read Exodus 1 slowly. Put yourself into the story. Don't just tick the box and move on to the next thing. Just like we did with the music this morning, where it's, it's almost like the words are clearer when it's done a little bit slower, right? Yeah. Like, read it slowly. It was hectic. And the reason I emphasize that is because they kept forgetting about that after God rescued them. And when things would be tough in the, in the new season of, of waiting and preparation, they would get so upset that they'd want to go back. And they would, and they would misrecall what it was like back in Egypt. So they are, they are brutalized. They are, they are beaten. They are forced to be, to be human machinery as they work seven days a week and as they are driven into the ground. And so, um, in fact, it even gets to a point where Pharaoh sees this isn't working, and he actually kind of issues this edict for infanticide, where, where every Hebrew boy born, he, he, he commands the midwives to kill every Hebrew boy born. And then when the midwives choose to honor God above Pharaoh, which God honors, by the way, then Pharaoh issues a new edict where the soldiers are meant to go around and find every, every living Hebrew boy under a certain age, and to drown them in the Nile. Again, an evil, evil man. 
Moses is born into the situation. He's set afloat. He's rescued. And I mean, the irony, I think God's got a good sense of humor, where he is adopted into Pharaoh's palace, and he's brought up there for 40 years. And then one day, because Moses obviously had a very clear idea of who God had called him to be, and so he tries to rescue one of his fellow Hebrews. This backfires, and, and people find out about it, and Moses has to flee into the wilderness for 40 years. God eventually calls him because the Bible tells us that God heard the cry of his people. Sometimes we think, God, why are you waiting so long? And I, I can't answer that question, but I can just tell you that God hears and he sees. And almost always he will try and send. And I think we're more of a variable than what we want to take ownership of. So whether or not we will say yes to God's sending is often the determining factor on whether or not the need that God's trying to meet is going to be met. And so, uh, again, I know some of you are familiar with the story, but, but, but Moses you know, begins this, this wild roller coaster of a journey with Pharaoh, and, and uh, he has to kind of prove himself with one plague after another after another until he eventually gets to the 10th plague, which is that of, of the, the firstborn uh, child being killed unless people actually uh, commit to, to placing their faith in the death of a lamb and, and putting the blood on the doorpost and, and what would become known as the Passover, which we'll come back to in a few moments. But God does this, cra- this just, again, a crazy series of miracles where he, where he takes them to the Red Sea. And again, the people are like, yay, we're free. Then they get to the Red Sea. What have you done? Have you brought us here to die? You know, and then God's like, Moses, just touch the sea and, you know, the sea. That's why I love the, the one line in that song about how, how there was someone in the, in the waters with us. And, and so God opens and then they go through and we see this pattern repeated again and again and again and again and again. Where they moan, we don't have water, boom, God gives water. We don't have food, boom, God gives food. Their, their clothing never wore out. Now, I don't know if that's good news or bad news. Okay, it obviously meant fashion wasn't changing anytime soon. They didn't have online shopping, they didn't have H&M, or cotton, like, like, but, but their clothes never wore out. Yet it is shocking. It is shocking as you read these first five books and see just how much they whined, just, just how often they gave up on God, where you're thinking, like, how short is your memory? In other words, ADD is not a new thing. Okay, like, like, like they, they, they would get distracted and, not, and forget what God had actually done for them. And so eventually they get out, in, then the, the Ten Commandments are issued in Exodus chapter 20, and kind of the remainder of Exodus goes into a bit more detail about these laws. And then we go into a book that's all about the laws. And this is the book of Leviticus. And this is normally that time where if you're trying to read the Bible uh, in a year, you want to give up. Anyone try to read through the Bible in a year and you get to Leviticus and you're like, social media is sounding very good right now. Like it's looking way more attractive than the book of Leviticus. Um, but Leviticus actually shows how God graciously provides a way for people to live in his presence. And I can't encourage you enough to, to take a look at something called the Bible Project um, they've, got, they've got these incredible videos online where, where you can, so for example, you can, you can watch or download the video on Leviticus and it gives you within five to eight minutes, it gives you, in my opinion, a better understanding, a better insight into something like the book of Leviticus um, than, than in some cases what a full degree in theology would give you. Like they just, 
do a great job. The guys that are putting together are PhDs in theology. They know what they're doing, and, and I have found it helpful, so I would encourage you. In fact, if you read, uh, if, you, if you use the Version Bible app to do any of your reading, if you look at the top left corner, there's a little icon that looks like a compass. You click on that compass, and it will always show you if there is a Bible project video that is relevant to to the book. So, you might, so, for example, I'm reading the book of Acts at the moment, so if I click on there, then it'll show me the introduction to the first half of Acts or the second half of Acts. So, the Bible Project really does help you understand the, the structure of the book of Leviticus. But, but it's interesting, so, so it helps us to understand why Leviticus is written. If we take a look at the end of the book of Exodus, so in chapter 40, verse 35, sorry, 34 and 35, it says that the cloud covered the tabernacle and the glory of God filled the tabernacle. Moses could no longer enter the tabernacle because the cloud had settled down over it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So, so we need to understand, Moses couldn't go in. Okay? In fact, the very first verse of Leviticus confirms this. It says that the Lord called to Moses from the tabernacle and said to him, and it goes on. So, so, so at the beginning of the book of Leviticus, and if you hang on, we'll see how in a moment that changes, the beginning of the book of Leviticus, there's this separation. And so God basically, um, through the book of Leviticus, goes through all of these different rituals and festivals and, and the priestly system and all these things to, to, to help. So again, we think like, well, that's separating us. Actually, he tried to show them a way to be connected and united. So we have a series of pictures that might give you a little bit of perspective. This, this certainly helped me out. If we can go to the first one there, please, Rebecca. It shows us how, sorry, not that one. There should be another one after that. Uh, there we go. So if you look at the kind of the first section and the last section of the book of Leviticus, these deal with the ritual sacrifices, and which are things like offerings for thanksgiving and repentance, etc., and then the ritual feasts, which are the annual festivals like the Passover, uh, Pentecost, Day of Atonement, etc., then the, the two sections next to those, so the second uh, section and the second last section, we see is broken up into describing the priestly system. So the first one is the priest ordained. The second one are the qualification for priests. So God's already saying, hey, if you're going to be a leader, if you're going to be a spiritual leader, there are expectations, there are requirements, there are qualifications. And then the last uh, two sections there are around ritual purity and moral purity. And what's interesting with the ritual purity, which is things like don't touch mold, and if you're wearing certain things, or if you know, bo- certain body fluids are, are being emitted, etc., then, then you're impure. It didn't necessarily mean that you had sinned. It was just, again, constantly getting this picture across that God is holy. God is set apart. And the moral purity, which is probably the one section, and this is the big question for everybody, how much of the Old Testament law is relevant to us? Well, the moral law, at least the principles behind them, is what is still mostly... <clears throat> relevant to Christians after the cross. But moral purity gives examples to describe how Israel were called to live differently to the Canaanites. And some of you know that we've been talking about this a bit lately, you know, whether or not there's any difference between the way that I'm living and the way that someone else is living for whom God is not the center of their lives. Like God wants us to be different, to be set apart, but to be different in a good way, not an arrogant way, not a self-righteous way in a way that is packed with the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, etc. And then right in the middle of that section, we find two chapters that describe something that's worth reading. And that's the Day of Atonement. I wish I had time to unpack what that means. And even as you read that, you'll, you'll see 
um, like just so much symbolism, so much of a foreshadowing of what Jesus did for us ultimately on the cross. Um, and again, that was a festival that would be celebrated every year. So again, as I said, the big question is, is simply what part you know, of these laws are still relevant to us? You know, do I still have to wash my clothes a certain way? Do I still have to avoid pork? Um, these, were, these were all ceremonial laws and, and civil laws, etc. The only thing ultimately that, that would have some kind of binding on us would be, would be what would be called the moral law. Or in fact, some would argue that it's actually only the command of Jesus, which is on the wall over there, which is to love God and to love people. So, so everything else actually falls underneath it. If you take a look at just that one verse of loving God and loving people, and you take the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments are all about loving God, and the next six commandments are all about loving people. If you, if you are in a relationship with God and you grow in loving God and loving people, you're going to be covering everything that needs to be covered. The, the bottom line, though, is that you're not going to be saved by obeying any particular law. We're only saved because of what things like the Passover and the atonement actually indicate or, or foreshadow. So, did Leviticus work? Well, let's take a look at Numbers chapter 1, verse 1. So, so, so we, we're trying to see, okay, at the beginning of Leviticus, the first verse, he separated then the first verse of Numbers. It says that a year after Israel's departure from Egypt, the Lord spoke to Moses in the tabernacle. In the wilderness of Sinai. So Leviticus 1 verse 1 says that God spoke from the tabernacle. Now, hey everybody, it worked. These systems that they've, that they've introduced. Now, in Numbers 1 verse 1, God's actually speaking to him in the tabernacle. And it's so easy for us to take this for granted. It's a big deal. It's a big deal to be able to come into the presence of God. Which, by the way, if you read Leviticus, you're like, yeah, it's like, it was a big deal. And it may... And it may Again, there are things there that we can apply. Like how we come into God's presence. Our heart's attitude. Whether or not we come with like, hey, what have you got for me today? Or if we come with a sense of awe and reverence and you're holy and you're perfect and you're amazing. So, if we take a look at the book of Numbers, again, it's probably got one of the most boring names in the Bible. The reason it's called that, at least in the English version, is because of the number of census lists that were issued in the book of Numbers. But in the Hebrew, the, the, the term there actually means in the wilderness, which is a better description of what's happening in the book of Numbers, because we see them wandering around. So, if we look at, at uh, sort of Exodus and Leviticus, that's basically covering like the first year period. After the Exodus, are you with me? Yeah. Right? So, so, so God has rescued them the first year. They, this is everything that's been covered in Exodus, Leviticus. Now Numbers starts to, to look at what happened after that. It opens with the census and, and it opens with, with arranging the tribes in the wilderness, where they would live, how they would camp around the tabernacle. And there are a few reminders about some of the ritual laws. But then we see a few kind of headings that you can put some of these things under. First, there were complaints to Moses. And these complaints make you want to hit somebody. Okay? Because again, if you remember what God has saved them from, and guys, we forget what God has... If, you, if you're a Christian, it is easy to forget what God has saved us from. If you've kind of always been a Christian, it's really, really hard to know what God has saved you from. They can forget what God has saved them from 
They have the short memory, so they complain about what they're missing from Egypt. Like, we used to have fish and onions and leeks. Like, who wants to go back to Egypt for leeks? Like, beat me, whip me, use me, use me as a human machine for seven days a week, but I want leeks. I'm missing leeks. Right? Like, we lose perspective. It used to be so amazing. No, it wasn't. You lose it. Like, it was, it was terrible. You cried and begged and pleaded with God to, to come and, and rescue you. I don't really mean that term, loser. <laughs> then they stir up complaints. You know, some people come and stir up complaints about the manna. Like, we've got no mead. So then God's like, Voof. he has quail. Like, God, God, God was so patient. God was so patient. Maybe if you, if you don't have a, a great grasp of the Bible, you've often wondered, like, is it the same God in the New Testament to the Old Testament? Because he seems so gracious and kind and nice and fluffy in the New Testament, and he seems so hectic and rigid. No, he's not. If you read properly, if you read in context, he was ridiculously patient, long-suffering, and kind in the Old Testament. The Bible tells us that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So it's the complaints to Moses. Then there are some complaints against Moses, like even his own brother and sister, Aaron and Miriam. They even kick up a fuss. Like, what's so special about Moses, actually? So then God's like, leprosy. Okay, Moses is special. <laughs> Hands off. We're sorry. <laughs> then Moses prays and Miriam's healed. Then there are complaints against God's promise. And this is where we read the account of Moses sending out the 12 spies to go and scout the land. And 10 of them come back with a negative report. And only two of them actually have faith. And it's incredible. You see the power of leadership as these 10 people hijack, literally, the destiny of millions. They're so compellingly convinced everybody that it's undoable, as, as if it was going to be easy, as if we weren't going to need God. But then you've got Joshua and Caleb, like, guys, God said it, that settles it, let's do it. And then they want to stone Joshua and Caleb because they're so positive and faithful. <laughs> they want to elect a new leader, leave Moses behind and elect a new leader, a new dummy, to lead them back to Egypt. Guys, do you see yourself? Sorry, I, by the way, when I use terms like that, that's how I speak to myself. I, I, I'm like, don't be a curse. Like, what's wrong with you, Jason? <laughs> Guys, as we look at these stories, it is mind-boggling. It is staggering to see how short our memories are. And then, and then, and, and seriously, it is like, it is sad. It should be distressing to us. If you are getting into the story, you see that God honors their choice. And this is the part of the story that we don't like. We're like, God, we don't want you. We want our own way. We're going to do our own thing. Oh. God, let me do my own thing. <laughs> you know, and we get so mad at God for honoring our choices. And we, and we want to shake a fist at heaven because he's so cold and ruthless and ugly. And guys, he's given us so much chance. But every single one of us, somewhere along the line, and if not in this life, then I promise you, when you stand before the judgment seat one day, God has to. That's, that's the part of his nature that is just. God has to honor our choices. And so not a single fighting man over the age of 20 will enter into the promised land. Because God's like, you don't want to go? You don't have to go. Now, if it were me, I'd say it with a different tone because I'm human. I think God's like, okay, we'll honor that. You're not going to go. If it was me, I was like, fine. You don't want to go? You're not going into the promised land. 
So I'm just saying, my tone and my, and my heart might be a little bit harsher than God's, but he honors their choice. No, the iPads are good. And so they wander around in the wilderness for the next 40 years. And only Joshua and Caleb were ultimately the ones that trusted God enough to do what he promised. And they were the only two that would eventually get into the promised land. And one of the, one of the stories that, that actually caught me by surprise, and I've read the stories before, but, but again, the Bible Project helped me see this with some perspective um, in my studies, was, was they show this picture of, in fact, we can maybe have the first picture up of this guy that's on the mountain. So, so this, this Moabite king, Balak, calls on the sorcerer, Balaam, and tries to pay him enough to curse uh, Israel. And Balaam like, knows enough to know, he says, listen, if God's going to bless them, I can't curse them. But he's like, no, no. So, so, so you see him trying to cast these, these curses, but then you see his face change as like God you know, responds with, no, no, we're going to bless them. And, and, and as you take a look at the next picture, you see this guy standing on the mountain, and he's looking down over the camps of Israel. So he's, he, is, he is looking out over these millions of Israelites, and he's trying to curse them, and God keeps rebuffing it with blessings, even while in the camp. The Israelites are blaspheming and whining and moaning. I was like, Zish. You talk about the faithfulness of God to his promise? That, I can't say how much that challenged me. Where, where again, because we lose perspective because we don't see what God's doing just yet and we don't see him coming through in the way that we want him to just yet and we can get angry and we can whine and we can even blaspheme. All the while, God's protecting us. Where... We can't even see that. It is crazy. And so we see this incredible contrast between Israel's rebellion and God's faithfulness. And so we come to the last book, which is that of Deuteronomy, which, by the way, Jesus loved. Jesus quoted the book of, Je- of Deuteronomy more than any other book. In fact, when he was being tested in the wilderness by Satan, he only quoted from the book of Deuteronomy. I think it's worth reading what Jesus read, yeah. right? Um, one of the famous verses, in fact, even, even most of this verse, Jesus was quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy simply means the second law because Moses is now, de- and you need to understand this, Moses is now dealing with a new generation. So, so they're about to go into the promised land. So this is now 40 years later. So, so, so the previous generation have all died, right? They, they've been wandering around for 40 years, and now Moses is basically giving his farewell speech. Moses knows that he's not going to enter into the promised land with him. Just now, he's going to walk up a mountain and die, which might sound bad, but he gets, he gets to go to heaven. Like, that's okay, all right? And so he, is, so, so he is trying to remind them of God's promises, God's purposes, and the consequences of not ultimately obeying God. And right at the very beginning of Deuteronomy 1 verse 2, it tells us that normally it takes 11 days to travel to Mount Sinai. Oh, it took them 40 years. Like, in case you guys can't learn from anything else, can you learn from the fact that it should have taken us 11 days? Google Maps didn't get us lost. Your parents got us lost. So can we not do what your parents did so that we can enjoy the promise of God? Right? And so we see Moses kind of, kind of giving these three addresses. The first, he looks back. So, so he reminds them uh, of God's uh, faithfulness. He reminds them of their parents' Rebellion, and he contrasts that with God's grace. Then Moses looks up, and he and he and he reminds them of the law, and he and he command, like he almost begs them to please be faithful 
to the law. And that's where this very famous verse comes in, where in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 and 5, and this verse was actually repeated for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. It says, listen, O Israel. And that word listen doesn't just mean hear. It means obey. Listen, O Israel. The Lord is our God, the Lord alone. So he's saying there will be no other gods. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. And again, this word love is not talking about an emotion. He's talking about a wholehearted devotion. He's saying, like, no holds barred. Like, love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And then Moses looks out. And he warns them. And, and to be honest with you, I actually, found, I actually find these passages, if you look at, if you read from like chapter 29, 30, etc. onwards, like it's actually quite hard to read. There should be passages in the Bible, by the way, that are hard for you to read. If they're not hard for you, I don't know if we're engaging enough. Where, where there are these unbelievable promises offered if we're going to follow God. And then there are these terrifying consequences warned of. If God, if, if God honors their choice and removes his hand, if they don't want him, if they reject him. And so, the final passage here in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19 onwards says, Today I've given you the choice between life and death. I don't know if you've picked up a theme, just how much choice comes into everything. God wants us. God has made a way, but we have to choose between life and death, between blessings and curses. Now I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice you make. Oh, that you would choose life. He's like begging, please choose life. So that you and your descendants might live. You can make this choice by loving the Lord your God, obeying Him and committing yourself firmly to Him. This is the key to your life. And if you love and obey the Lord, you will live long in the land the Lord swore to give your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses knows them, so he's like, I'm telling you all this, but then he's like, but I know you're going to turn away from God. And so when God does what he said he's going to do if you turn away from him, and if you find yourselves captive somewhere, you know what? Even then, if you will turn, if you will repent, God will be merciful. Isn't it crazy? And that's why I say it reminds me so much of the story of the prodigal son. So there you have it. The worship team can come on up. We have the first five books with the law of God in hand, the promised land in front of them. So they haven't entered into it yet. And God's plan to call the world back to himself. And so I want to encourage you. By the way, I mean, if this doesn't make you want to get into scripture and read some of these stories for yourself, then I don't know. I'll leave that between you and God. But next week, we're going to find out what happened as they they actually... Uh, kind of moved into this next season and began to enter into the promised land.